Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Friend of a Friend. It's your host, Olivia Perez. I'm a journalist, interviewer, and the creator of the show where we get to sit down, meet some new friends, and go inside the minds of some of the most innovative and creative forces shaping our world today. I've really been looking forward to today's episode, and not that I don't look forward to every single episode, but this one in particular, because it's not often that I get to have someone on my show who's had such an immense, genuine impact on my life. And I'm sure so many of you have felt the same way, because over the past year and throughout 2020, such a complicated year, Jenea has been a huge source of hope, inspiration, and knowledge for so many of us, whether you showed up to one of their protests in person or even just following them on Instagram. Jenea Future Khan is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Canada and has become a leading voice in the global crusade demanding social justice reform and equality. Also known as Future, Jenea is a Black, queer, gender non-conforming activist, a boxer, and a social justice educator who's become a viral sensation through their Sunday sermons on Instagram Live, where they discuss a variety of topics from culture, politics, finding your voice, Black Lives Matter, and more. I am a avid Sunday sermon listener and I tune in every week. If you guys haven't caught it yet, make sure you do every Sunday at 12 p.m. Pacific time. There is an audio glitch in this episode. I'm super sorry, guys. And I find it very funny because last week I posted a photo on Instagram being like, we're back in the Dear Media Studios. Audio is going to be great. And of course, the following episode that we did from home has a glitch, but it's minor. I hope you guys can push through it because there are so many incredible gems in this episode and it's definitely one of my favorites. As always, if you haven't subscribed to the show and you find yourself coming back, take the time to subscribe and leave us a review. And as always, if you're listening, make sure you take a screenshot, share it on Instagram and tag me. I'll always reshare and engage with you guys as you're listening. I appreciate you all so much. Thanks for tuning in today and spending time with us. I hope you have an amazing week. Here's my friend, Jenea Khan. A way that I love to start the show is asking my guests, say we are best friends and you are calling me for a a normal morning conversation. What's on your mind today? What's on your heart? How are you feeling? That should be a simple, straightforward question, but I think under these circumstances, not so much. How am I feeling? Well, I'm a mix. I am frustrated and... I am hopeful. I'm both of those things. I'm frustrated uh, because there is um, there's just a, there's always a constant tension, I think, between the growing pains of change, and it can be a very difficult place to position oneself. And I think that's where I like to be. 
So I feel like I have to be on the pulse all the time with the said and the unsaid. And that means, you know, on the streets. Uh, and it means, I think, online um, in my community, just feeling like I'm on the pulse of what's what people are feeling. And it's that liminality that I think is both freeing and also uh, painful. Yeah. I love that you just said that because when we set up this interview, I think something that was most striking to me about you and always has been uh, someone I consider myself a fan and someone who I, um, you're someone I deeply admire, but I've, as someone that also has a platform herself and chooses to be vocal and chooses to speak, I'm also very aware of the emotional work that comes with finding the courage to speak and putting your voice out there. And I feel like that probably comes along with a lot of other cuts and bruises, especially when it comes to this idea of being on the pulse. Yes. But being on the pulse for change of change is something that is also probably uncomfortable and sticky. And there's a lot of emotional work that comes with what you do. So I'm really excited to get to know you today, especially through that lens, because as a storyteller, too, that's something that I've just admired so much about you. And I've always been really curious about that journey. So I'm excited to talk today and get to know you. That's what's up. I'd love to hear a little bit about your upbringing. I know you've been very honest and open about, about adversity that you faced as a child. And I'd love if you felt comfortable enough to share what your experience was like growing up in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. it took me a long time to share that part of my life. I think I was always very comfortable with going back to my early 20s. And if you're a really good storyteller, you're actually able to, and this is something I'm really interested with you too, um, as someone who says, you know, who identifies as such. There is a way, I think, when you're a storyteller who, whose job it is to create an experience, facilitate an experience for people, but also pull out other people's stories. I think that's, that's the part that's often missed with the storyteller part. It's that the assumption is you only tell. And we are great we're so great at curating intimacy. We're really good at making people feel like they see uh, a bigger picture, see themselves in your experience, um, uh, see your life. And I think when you're very good at that, it's, uh, it can be a kind of hiding too. Um, mm -hmm. And I realized uh, that somewhere in the last couple of years that I, you know, it's I think you, you're like, you hit the restart and you're like, great, I'm an adult now. Here's the restart button. I'm an adult now. And these other things are things that I'll deal with, you know, specifically in therapy or whatever. And I really didn't feel haunted by my experiences of the past. It wasn't so much that I just didn't want to look at it. I didn't, yeah. I didn't want to look at it. There was no need. Um, it was, I had put it in a neat pile, all the experiences of the, you know, the group homes and the women's shelters and, I put it in, you know, foster care. I put it in a very neat pile and I pushed it away. And I thought that that's what one needed to do. And so I've always, in therapy, for example, I was very clear. I said two things to my therapist before I selected this person um, to move forward with. I said, A, I'm not looking for a friend. I'm looking for an accountability partner. Um, I don't need new friends. Um, I don't need someone who's just wildly affirming everything that I think and feel. And two, I want to start with where I am right now. I don't, I don't need to go back and strip. Mm. 
I'm right. I want to grapple with where I am right now and where I'm going. And I realized somewhere in the last couple of years that everything about my relationship to my past and my present was about control. And even as I'm speaking to you now, Olivia, I'm actually speaking more honestly in this conversation I, you know, than I um, then I haven't. I'm not. Maybe it's the pandemic. I'm not sure exactly why, but I'm. I'm not. I usually have really beautiful prose and one-liners um, to offer. And and no, it was about control. I wanted. Uh, if you have, if you grew up in instability, and that doesn't mean that you're moving all around the way that I was. If you grew up in any kind of instability, even if it was emotional instability, uh, because you know, people who are young in their minds, have children, it doesn't have to be the most extreme circumstance. Being a parent is very hard and suddenly you're responsible for someone else. And people aren't always the most consistent. So we're all growing up in a kind of confusion and selfish bewilderment. So if you grew up with a kind of instability, you want to create control around you all the time. And if you are an organizer, that's your job. Your job is to constantly build a container. And um, I think it's partly that chaos that this world is. Um, we feel the most comfortable in it. And so we try to build a container. Right. <sighs> you know, and... Um, I feel like we also build those containers to protect ourselves. Yes. From, from the deep abyss of the unknown. Yes. And that is so... Um, at what point... And I suppose this is what, what, I'm, what I'm getting to. Because I think it, it matters and we need that. But at what point does the trench that we built to protect ourselves, at what point does it become a shallow grave at right. what point, right? And, um, or the container that we build around ourselves, at what point do we start to feel around the edges and it's too tight? Do we stay there or do we move forward and through? And so my life uh, in Toronto, uh, my, you know, my childhood growing up, it was, uh, it was a difficult one. And I think I spent a long time um, minimizing that uh, because trying to, hoping that somebody could see me in my pain, but also not just as someone in pain. Right. It, it got to be too much. So I just thought, all right, I'll, I'll put that aside and, you know, deal with the world around me and deal with the people around me. And, and I think for a lot of people who grow up, who are socialized as women or girls, you either run, you run the risk of extremes because there's not a lot of care or infrastructure for you. So you either overshare or never share at all. And <laughs> You're, you know, when you're at home washing your face at night, you're like, why did I say that? Oh, God. Oh, God. That was me every day of my early 20s. Yeah. Every day. We'll be right back after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. In today's episode, you guys will hear me and Janae Khan talk about their experience with therapy. I was so deeply moved by this part of our conversation not just because how they've used therapy as a tool to help themselves and help the people around them, but how intentional their approach was to finding the right therapist for them, which is why I'm really excited to be sharing BetterHelp with you guys today in case it inspired you as well. BetterHelp is making professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist. So you can go in there and select from a wide range of themes and topics like sleeping, trauma, anxiety, LGBTQ matters, family conflicts, and more, and know that you're going to be matched with someone that can address your needs. Plus, you'll be connecting in a safe and private online environment. 
so it's really convenient. No waiting rooms. You can do it from the comfort of your home. You can start communicating with a therapist in under 48 hours. And after that, you can send a message to them at any time. It is more affordable than traditional online counseling as well. And financial aid is available to anyone who needs. So I want you guys to start living a happier life today. And I hope after today's episode, you feel the same. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com friend. And you'll be joining over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health too. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash friend. Hi, we're Carlene and Jill, hosts of Breaking Beauty Podcast, the show all about the breakthrough people, products, and moments in beauty. On our show, you're going to find hella inspiring guests like Emily Weiss of Glossier, and you'll get beauty tips galore from the top pros in the industry, like Kim Kardashian's makeup guru, and you'll hear skincare secrets from the likes of Dr. Pimple Popper. Plus, you'll get shopping help with our Damn Goods episodes, where we review the latest products hitting store shelves to let you know what's actually worth your money. Listen every Wednesday to Breaking Beauty Podcast. There's a word that I had to uh, grapple with about my growing up in Toronto. And uh, because, you know, I grew up very poor and that's not difficult for me to say because I had, I worked through all the stuff that comes with being told, you know, all the narratives that you're born into, all the assumptions that are made about you and your family, you know, but, uh, you know, my mom had a lot of severe mental health issues and she didn't have any help. And that's, that's the part that matters. It's that. She had a postpartum that was so terrible. I don't think she ever recovered. Wow. And, and suddenly there are three children and I'm a twin. Uh, so she has two infants and a three-year-old uh, and a declining mental health. And it was so bad that she was actually institutionalized for a couple of months. And um, my sister and I as infants were put into foster care. And these are not things that you know growing up. They're not things, I didn't come to know this until I received my file from the, uh, was placed in a Catholic Children's Aid Society. I didn't know this about my mother until I turned about 16, 17 and I got my file. So there's the story that is of the neglectful mother, which I think is, or there's the one that counts, which is that somehow with no resources and no help, my mother raised us on her own and held it together for about 10 years as much as she could and still kept trying. She just needed more help, you know, and it made for a lot of moving around uh, between 11 and 22. I have, I'd moved over 22 times. Wow, um, a lot of instability for at that age where you're really trying to, to find yourself and figure out who you are. Yes, it was. And um, I haven't uh, lived with my mom since I was, 13, 14. And, um, but if you ask her, if you ask my mother, if you said, uh, when did, uh, when did Janae move out? My mother will say, she calls me Nay. She'll say, oh, Nay lived with me until, um, and she'll use, you know, female gendered pronouns, which is totally fine. She'll say, you know, Nay lived with me until she graduated from college, right? And that used oh. to incense me. I would get very upset about that because I think how are you you know I, you know when you're hurt and all that's all you can see you you think to yourself how are you going to take the one thing that I have which is this story that's mine after you know taking so many other things from me 
how could you take this story from me, this truth that's mine? And I, I think I was there for my teenage years. And then somewhere along the line, when I got out of myself and started to see how people saw my mother in the world, how they treated her, and when I started to confront the tensions of who I was and who I wanted to be, which was around 16 or so, I started to realize that my mother wasn't trying to manipulate people into thinking she was a good person or into th- or, or my mother wasn't trying to manipulate people to say that I was a liar. Right. What she was doing was making an offering. It is something that she wished had happened. And wow. right. And right. that's the closest thing to a reckoning or an apology that one could ever hope to get isn't just, I'm sorry, which she's not capable of saying uh, because of all the other things that are going on. It's saying, I wish this happened. And my God, isn't to me, I had to really, I reckon um, it was my own reckoning because people who believe me, right? I mean, you we're talking, you know, Olivia, we haven't had a conversation before, but you know, in the world we've been in each other's orbit, but I'm talking to you and you'd believe me. Right, I'm, of course. You know, you. But when people see my mother, they don't believe her. They, you know, there's. Um, she's read as someone who has mental health issues. She's this tiny little black woman with, because of a lot of other health issues. You know, her hands are thick and gnarled and claw-like because of her arthritis. She wears a huge patch on her face that she's worn for as long as I've been alive. Um, I think it's just an anchor around the mental health stuff and. Um, her eyes slightly bulge because of Graves' disease. So when people see my mother, no one ever believes her. So I have to believe her. You know, you do. do. And you absolutely do. You know, and so when when I, I I'm sharing this with you, I think because I don't know how to talk about fairly my childhood without properly representing my mother and the relationship and the the growth curve that I had to go on um, to to see um, just how impactful and how much I am me because of her. It's amazing to hear you say this because there's a quote that you've said before that I resonated with so deeply. It was, we spend our childhood learning and our adulthood unlearning. Mm -hmm. And I deeply resonated with that. But it was also interesting to hear the contrast in you saying the first, what helped you find your therapist was saying, I don't want to go backwards. Yes. Yeah. I, but I understand that. I understand that deeply. Not wanting to unravel this like giant mess and just being like, I want to start from who I am right now. Like here today, I want, I want to show up as who I am and I want to unpack that person. Yeah. Is it safe to assume that those therapy sessions ended up getting into the thick of things and were probably very useful in helping unlearn some things? I am a massive proponent of therapy. I had to go through uh, maybe two or three therapists to find one that I liked. It took me about two to three tries to find a therapist that I really uh, felt connection with. And, you know, I gave it each about three to five sessions. And sometimes you can know right away, but I, I really wanted to, to test out the waters. And I also had to get comfortable with talking to a stranger for money. Absolutely. In a time constraint. Like I had a, you know, I had weird relationships with that. Now I'm grateful for all of those things. I love structure. I do too, but I always got that weird vibe in the last five minutes where I was like, okay, well, time's up. 
okay so so am i am i fixed is, it, <laughs> is that all that's it <laughs> Do you know, I found, Olivia, that I didn't need to go back very often. Uh, we didn't talk about childhood stuff probably until my first, maybe until a year in, because there just wasn't any need. There were so many things that were pressing in this moment. Uh, there were so many things around movement stuff. But I've been seeing the same therapist since 2018. And I remember the first time I sat there, I said, you know, hey, I, I want to talk about these things. I want to talk about how to make goals and stick to them. And then the second one, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, I just went through this, you know, massive heartbreak and my grandmother passed away and all these things. And we need to, you know, pivot. And so we spent a great deal of time on those things. And I think that said, I think for folks, there's so much pressure to go in with specific questions or something that you want to grapple with. Um, and to do that immediately. And, uh, for me, um, it was so useful to just have an organic relationship to therapy, to feel like I could pivot at any moment, that there didn't have to be a clear through line, that that would happen naturally if, if I was consistent with it. And, and I, yeah, it's, uh, we need, I think everyone needs a witness on some level, and it's not always fair or possible. And so to have that kind of equitable exchange with someone and to have a connection, to build that over time. You know, I have a rapport with my therapist, but we're not friends. And, and I think that that's important, um, that she has a specific role to play for me, and I have a specific role to play for other people in my life and, 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 and for myself. And I just, I wish that, A, we could eliminate the stigma around therapy, you know, and B, that uh, it was free therapists were being paid and being paid well and that people could access it without concerns around money because it's it's something that we all deserve it's something that we all need we'll be right back after a quick break if you follow me on instagram you know that i'm absolutely obsessed with my new puppy bodie who's actually peacefully sleeping at my feet right now it is the cutest thing ever and he's such a good podcast dog but i would do anything to help him live a healthier, happier, and longer life, which is why I'm so excited to introduce you guys to a company called Gallant today. It's a biotech company that saves your pet's stem cells, allowing you to treat your dog later in life for injuries and age-related illnesses. The cells are harvested during your pet's spay or neuter from the tissue that's normally thrown away, but banked for future use. Now, you guys might be thinking that stem cells are futuristic or just for humans, right? But actually, over the past decade, thousands of pets have been successfully treated with their own stem cells and improving the lives of dogs and cats suffering from allergic skin conditions, dry eye, orthopedic injuries, and more. There's so much evidence that stem cells can help our loved ones live healthier and longer because while traditional medicine just manages the symptoms of disease, stem cell therapies have been shown to address the root cause of age-related illnesses. So don't miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for your pet. Save their young, healthy stem cells with Gallant's patented, non-invasive procedure. With storage plans that start at only $45, you can give them access to potentially life-changing therapies. Visit Gallant.com today to learn more and use coupon code FRIEND to save $100 off the banking plan of your choice. I learned that, and this is something that was so incredibly interesting to me about you I learned that you were very shy as a kid <laughs> yeah. which the the irony 
to me <laughs> is is unbelievable. And I'd love to hear a little bit about, I think when you're shy, I think being shy is almost not allowing yourself to be seen. Mm-hmm. I think and when I think of a shy kid, I think of someone who hides behind their parents or someone that doesn't necessarily want to engage in conversation. Yeah. And I wonder if there's a moment where you feel like you allowed yourself to be seen from the first time. Oh, <laughs> I, I wasn't shy in the traditional sense, which is, yes, the sort of, I was afraid. I was afraid of everything. And um, I think that was another, a response to my constantly changing conditions. I was, change was a very bad thing for me. Um, it, it always meant no control, surprises that I wasn't, I, I didn't want uh, so I was afraid all the time and it didn't take, it made me both reckless at certain moments and very small at others. And I was so afraid that I couldn't, uh, you know, when we got a bit older and, you know, maybe, and I'm not talking about like six or seven or eight, I mean, you know, 14, 15, and I'm getting, I'm also getting into all kinds of trouble at that point in my life. But I couldn't even hand money to a cashier. Uh, if I could help it, I would shove any, you know, I'd shove a couple of dollars into a friend's hand and get out of there. I couldn't, any kind of human interaction felt overwhelming to me, the idea of being seen. And there are so many reasons for that. There's reasons around gender and, you know, at that age, particularly uh, maybe up until from, I don't know, 10 to 19, which is a ridiculously long period of time nobody was clear about my gender and I wasn't clear about it, but I didn't, I wasn't in control of that. Uh, so I was being asked on the street, are you a boy or a girl? By strange, strangers, adults, you know, I could be on my way to work from school and I'd be wearing, you know, a toque and an oversized shirt, which was what we all wore back then. Um, but <laughs> what an immense amount of pressure. Yes. Um, to put on someone, uh, put on a yes, kid. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah. And the way that people felt okay to ask me that. And it's a thing that still happens today, but it was much more difficult to navigate as a young person. They look at my face and my chest, my face and my chest, my face, trying to figure out how is it that I could, they're not sure about the face or the body was supposed to confirm for them what I was. It's, I mean, it really gave me an insight into how committed people are to norms and how much, they glean from those norms. Why is it so important to know what I am? Is it because of how you'll talk to me or how you'll treat me or what? It doesn't feel like I'm on the same time, like the same line as I am now where I could stand in front of 40,000 people easily as I've done and have no issue, you know, giving directive or holding the mic or... Being the epicenter of community. (laughs) Yes. It's amazing. Yeah, and it, I think there wasn't a specific moment where it clicked for me. I think it was a combination of starting to box that forced me very aggressively into my body in a good way, where the curve, the learning curve is a punch in the face, <laughs> consensually, um, but it forced me back into my body. So my body was no longer an object for other people to grapple with. I was now grappling with myself. You know, I think for anyone out there struggling with finding themselves or finding their voice. I'll tell you this, had I started out by trying to find myself, 
I'd still be looking. Instead, what I did was what was easier to do. And, uh, you know, I know people think it's noble or brave, but it's actually easier. I think it's easier to stand up for someone than it is yourself. I agree. You know, and it was so much easier. And even, you know, of course, these communities that I'm related to, that I'm, you know, a part of and everything else. But um, I, I found myself in the service of other people. It's so beautiful to hear you say that because when I listen to you mm. and I look at the general, per, like, perception of activism like I think we're still in this phase of people projecting this vision of activism as being like loud and disruptive and something that feels angry and my experience anytime I've been standing up for other people or part of a community has been totally different and my experience even listening to you and and seeing you organize Mm -hmm. you have such a sense of zen to you like you bring so much and acknowledge wisdom and clarity to these situations that I actually walk away feeling informed. And I think there's such a dichotomy there that I think that there, we're still stuck in this, this phase where we're viewing it very stereotypically. And that's not really what it is. No, it isn't. And, you know, we can, you know, there's a lot of things. I think, you know, the fish shaking at protesters, right. and, you know, every time I see a protest sort of on television, it's always this very like, People with signs, me, 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 you know, it's walking around in a circle. And but no, it's it's and I think people forget, too, that protest is often the last resort. It's when every other effort has kind of failed, every every effort at conversation, at intervention, at shifts and policy and everything else. You know, nobody wants to do that. Nobody actually wants to be on the street, you know, risking their life to be heard. It would be much easier to just be heard. Wouldn't it? And and there's a I think there are a lot of mechanisms that make uh, that that are in place so that people's voices, some people's voices, are heard far less than others. You know, and I know for me, I have understood, I've come to understand that because I think it's uh, an easy sell to say, well, you grew up this way, and I grew up this way, and I look this way, so therefore it makes sense that I'm an activist. I realize that that's limited in thinking um, that activism isn't what we thought it was, that it's more. Activism isn't the work of sort of, you know, just simply being, it's really the work of being alive. Like that's actually what, like, what is, what is it asking you to do? It's asking you to be a part of the world of the human condition. It's asking you to be in your body, in your mind. We didn't get to swipe left or right on what zip code we were born into, what skin, what hair nothing, what family, we were born into a set of conditions, right? That's all of us. At some point in our lives on this planet, those conditions become ours. If we don't try to change them or shift them, the script becomes our script. And my job is to remind people that you actually forfeit something when you assimilate into an entity you had no hand in creating. You forfeit a part of yourself. because. If you are now operating as an agent of this thing that says that you belong, but I don't, you have forfeited a part of who you are. And my job is to remind you the cost is too high, because I'll say this to you. And I'm a believer that complacency is the death of the soul. And I'm not a religious person so much as I am a, one who believes in, a, in spiritual realities. Uh, and I believe that is the human condition, that thing that connects us, that supernatural thing that happens when we're in space together that we're now being deprived of. If the mind is the muscle of the soul, 
which is to say the closest thing to the grace of God we have within us, should such a thing exist, then the ability to think for oneself and see the world as it is, not as we were told it is, and to see the and see each other as we are, not as we are told we are. Um, the ability to think for oneself then is the holiest thing that one can do, and the opposite the most heinous. So when I say it is the work of being alive, what do you believe? What do you love? What are you willing to fight for? What parts of this world have you helped to create or have you assimilated into? And again, all of us, I don't care where you're from, I would say all of us at some point know exactly what it feels like to be treated as utterly worthless, told we were not enough, told to shut the hell up and shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. And a small people is a voiceless people. And a voiceless people is very easily controlled. And um, it's not, there are mechanisms that were in place before we even got here. So when I say it's the work of being alive, I want people to know that the cost, that forfeiture of part of who you are, it's too high. You're worth too much. So we've got to fight to get it back because if complacency is the death of the soul, then action, activating um, ourself, our consciousness, um, our hearts, our minds, our spirits, that is what grows it out. We'll be right back after a quick break. As you all know, this show is all about taking you guys inside some of the most innovative and creative minds shaping our world today. But behind all those entrepreneurial journeys and really exciting news, I'm sure that we can all agree that our minds can definitely be a place filled with anxiety and sleepless nights. I know I've definitely had quite a few of those, especially after the past year that we've had, which is why I am so excited to be teaming up with Right Wellness Company, the creators of an all-new natural solution for sleep, pain, and anxiety. Right Wellness has helped me find the relief I'm looking for thanks to their all-new tincture that uses the latest transformative hemp ingredient, CBN. Not CBD. We're talking about CBN here. It's a powerful, non-intoxicating hemp-derived compound with benefits around reducing stress, sleeping better, and managing aches and pains. I've had a pretty hard time sleeping lately, and let me tell you, one tincture of this every night, and I'm sleeping through the night. I'm not feeling groggy before bed. I'm not waking up foggy. It's really a natural sleep that I feel like I haven't gotten in years. So Right Wellness wants to help you guys get the relief you deserve. Save 20% off for being a listener of the show by simply going to rightwellness.co. That's rightwellness.co and use the promo code FRIEND20. And you're going to try it risk-free. If you're not fully satisfied in the first 30 days, they'll give you a full refund. rightwellness.co and use the promo code FRIEND20. I'm still so captivated by hearing your story of you as a young adolescent and a young teenager and hearing you now. I think it's an incredible feat and I'm sure it must be really incredible for you to look back on your personal growth and how that's impacted the lives of so many people. I hope it has. I hope, you know, I I get this question a lot. Um, You know, what is it? What is it that you hope to achieve ultimately? Um, or like, what is your legacy? You know, um, does that question scare you? No, it doesn't. I think um, I very much want to live, but I think in the work that I do, I understand that people who do the work that I do don't tend to live very long. But you don't choose the work that I do because your intention is to have a lasting um, life. You do choose the work. That I, that I chose because you hope to have a lasting legacy. And the legacy that I hope is one um, where there are enough people who 
are in themselves enough that they want to fight for something that's better, that there are, and I know that that leads to the kinds of policy shifts and legislative shifts. And, you know, we have voter, um, the rollback of voter protections. We have, I think, what, 253 bills have been, uh, have been introduced since 2021 um, against uh, voter protections. Uh, 83 bills as of two days ago uh, have been introduced to roll back on trans protections. Um, so these, these, these attacks on black communities, poor communities, uh, trans communities, to me are very indicative of where the, um, where a lot of bigots are gonna focus their energy and their attention to drive us apart. Um, and if, my, if, if the work that I do helps to bring us back together or to hold us there to be a glue, um, then I'm happy. I see myself not as a kind of martyr or a champion. I see myself as the boxing club um, where my job is to stay open. And there are going to be a lot of people that come through those doors. And if you're lucky, you'll get, you know, just like any boxing club, you get a, one or two champions in your lifetime. Um, but you've got to stay open. You know, and if I can stay open for as long as I can, then that's, that's as much as I could ever hope to do. I have to say, I really... I look forward to Sunday sermons. I really do. And I think it is such an incredible extension of who you are and an extension of the boxing club. I'd love to hear a little bit about how that came together for you and where the idea came from, because I think I don't, it's not something that I feel like we see often on Instagram live. I feel like Instagram live has been used for a lot of other things, but this (laughs) is something that I, genuinely look forward to tuning into every week. And I've even seen, like there's an account on there now that is transcribing your sermons. And there's such a deep sense of community there. And it almost feels like, it feels like I'm, I don't have like a religious affinity, but it feels like what I would assume going to church is kind of like every week, like everybody coming together and, and, discussing a certain topic and walking away feeling really inspired and definitely more informed and almost more down to earth. Yes. uh, I tend to only want to open my mouth and enter the public domain. If I feel like I can be helpful, Mm. if something that I think has already been said, I will amplify that thing. I don't need to be there myself. If I think that something is being missed in the conversation or there are ways that I can help bring the threads together, then I want to open my mouth. Um, so I remember after George Floyd was murdered, um, there was a lot of conversations that were happening about what's to be done and how to do it and who do we listen to, um, who do we not listen to? And I thought, I see some really good threads, but they're not, they're not, they don't feel cohesive to me. And um, of course, you know, each social media platform has a different culture. And for whatever reason, you know, I'm keen on, on IG. It's the least, it's the one that stresses me out the least. But I didn't think that it was going to be, you know, I just decided, well, I mean, this the, Instagram is truly the worst medium to have a 40-minute conversation, um, you know, about politics. Like, it's just, it's not, that's not at all what it's for. And I thought, I mean, I enjoy this. Um, you know, I like this and I think I can be useful, you know. Um, but I, I didn't want, to have the lecture, the traditional lecture sort of model. And it sucks because I actually love feeling people. Right. And I know you get a little bit of that in the live. 
Um, but I really don't like like staring at myself the whole time. Um, so, but I, 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 Sermon felt I was chosen for two reasons. One, it felt cheeky to sort of, you know, look at this like raging homosexual non-binary person, you know, grappling with this particular word, Sermon. But also... Because it, we're not just talking, we're talking, and I hope that, you know, it's delving into the worlds of, you know, philosophy, uh, morality, purpose, meaning, politics, Absolutely. all of these things, you know, and sometimes we, you know, there is a Sunday where I'm like, yeah, these, we need to talk about these bills uh, that so that we have a, so that when we say we know that things aren't necessarily getting better in, in, as an, you know, as an offering and as an intervention, we're not left without resourcing to say, I know this because I, I hope that that these sermons not just help people inside, but I want it to be a shield. I want it to be a shield for people because part of my job as an organizer, and you know, I don't even know, you know, that's what I am anymore. I think we're, you know, but uh, is to provide um, a language and a bit of a shield so that when people say this is happening, that they can actually quantify that, that they can qualify that, that they can say, I know this is happening because X, Y, and, you know, I hope that that they act as that, that, you know, that when we are talking and we say, hey, you know, racism exists or sexism exists, people say, how? That we're not just grappling with this really base level question, that there's actually strategies that we can use to get around it. Um, Right. You're arming people with the knowledge. Yes, and uh, that everything that I felt, I know that you felt. And I know um, that everything that you felt, I felt. I know everything that you've dreamed, I've dreamed. And so if there's a way to also say we're human and that we're still going to have all the contradictions that come with being people, ugly thoughts, thoughts that are insecure, damaging to ourselves, moments uh, where we're driven by ego, that these things are not things that should be repudiated. You know, they should be understood and that we can actually use those. They're not failings. I think we think that they're failings. I'm like, these are not failings. They're little reminders of either where we need to go or where we've been or that this feeling comes from somewhere and that something has to be done with it. So we spend a lot of time too talking about pain as a thing that limits since when we allow it to, instead of um, a, a tool that we can use as well. Right. I have to ask, every time I watch you, and this is something from, this is coming from someone who enjoys public speaking and it's a part of their orbit. Are you holding a wood chip in your hand? <laughs> yeah, I always am. You do. It's a t- is it a totem for you? Um, do you know, I, I have a really, I like when, anytime I'm presenting or talking, I pace I hope it doesn't drive people nuts, but you know, the stage could be this big and I'm pacing back and forth right? because I don't really prepare things. I don't pre-prepare things. I sort of just go off what's in my head and movement helps. And so licorice oh, root wow. has helped. Oh, it's licorice root. I thought it was wood. No, I mean, it is, uh, right. it's, you know, right. it's a stick, but, um, it's licorice root. Just, it's, um, it gives me some sort of fixate on so I can stay still. Otherwise wow. you and I would be walking around all over the house and, you know, doing all kinds of things. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by, I don't know if you would consider that a totem, but in, in my brain, I would. I'm very fascinated by that because I think when you are doing the work that you do, I think it's so easy to almost float out of your body to an extent. And I always do everything I can to kind of keep my feet on the ground. And I love totems for that. They really kind of ground you in that moment. Yes. Um, and I've always been so 
curious whenever I see you speak what that meant for you. It's a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's ruined many a picture at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's pretty. You know what? Whatever works. Yeah. Whatever, gets, whatever gets the job done. Yes. yes. So, guys, if you haven't checked out Sunday Sermons, they're every Sunday, noon, L.A. time, right? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Like, what a way to just be a part of an incredible community um, on Sundays come together. There's always incredible topics, and I always walk away feeling deeply, deeply moved. What's your creative ambition for this year? What's something that's on your goal list this year? Uh, well, it's, you know, whether or not I want to be, it's where my body and my mind is. Um, I am in the final stages of a book proposal. So that was tough. That was, remember we started this out talking about control. I'll tell you, Olivia, I, I was like, here are six life experiences. I'm only going to talk about this six life, these six life experiences, and I'm going to stretch the shit out of them to get them to 10 lessons. And then, heavy emotional work. That's right. And that's all anyone is going to know. And the, the writing showed, like the writing um, showed the strain of my control. And mm. it took many months to get the writing to a place that felt like it was where, where I am at as an orator, which is to say that I'm not just stretching and trying to control. And I realized what I set out to write is no longer what I'm writing. I wanted to write um, a set of lessons and that will happen at some point in the future. And this proposal is very much not that it's not a polemic. And uh, so we'll see like it, but it, so that's something that will move forward and um, it will be taking up some time and, very exciting. Congratulations. I'm really, yes, it was hell. Yeah. And good hell, yeah. but hell. Yeah. <laughs> Even good hell is hell. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. What is your best piece of advice for somebody listening right now who might be shy and wants to find their voice and, and really speak up for things that they believe in? Practice. Hmm. It's um, practice. You know, nobody's profound at first. Nobody sounds profound. Nobody sounds great. At first, we all sometimes it just starts with a no, and that's what it started with for me. It was just no. You'll have somebody coming in, why and what do you say? But the no is enough. The no is that first step where you put your whole body into something that is scary, which is you know not going with the grain, um, and that's one of the hardest things to do. And everything else after that gets a little easier. But if you practice, everyone's had a moment where you went home and you thought of that thing that you should have said in the middle of an argument, and you're like, damn. That's good. Why would I come up with this three hours later? It's the same thing, right? All the time. <laughs> it's washing my face. Why didn't I say that? Why did I say this? <laughs> it's the same thing. Um, I anytime that I have been stumped, when I, you know, and I it doesn't happen very often anymore, but that's only because I practiced. Um, when I was I can imagine. I would be. And um, I would think of three things that I could say. I would think of three things that I could say, none, none, none of them profound and, you know, none of them really laden with data or stats. What are three things that I could have said to this? And that kind of ideating, that practice, it made me better at what I wanted to do. So I think practice is the biggest thing. And the other thing I'll say, because of the age that we're in, you know, I spoke to a Gen Zer, a real one <laughs> recently. And a real one. Yes. In real life, in the flesh. Yes. And I real there's a lot of emphasis, 
I think for, and I realize it's not just them because it's it's all of us. There's a lot of emphasis on virability. If you go viral, then suddenly you're important. Yes. And what I want to say is the most important thing is that you like what you say, that you stand by what you say, that you value what you say, because that is your legacy. That is your imprint. And it could, you know, the, the three can and will turn into 300 and can and will turn into 3000 or whatever. If, if you put your whole self behind the thing, because at that point, it doesn't matter how many people are interested in what you have to say. If you have a solid couple of folks who have your back, um, who roll with you, who value what you say and how you think and how you feel. If you have those things, it's critical connections. That's so much more important than critical mass. And I realized that all of this pandemic and social media can have us turn us, turn us around. You know, I can tell you now having had this experience of, you know, viral this and that a number of times, once you log out of the app, it doesn't, your life is the same. You're still home. You're still home. And, um, but what, what mattered most to me was that I liked what I said. And if I didn't like what I said, then I addressed that. And, um, I just want us to know, like, you know, my, just remember this, that my first, my first protest that I ever called, I called out, you know, everyone out. I said, hey, you know, nine people showed up. Three were babies. You know, and it, so it starts, it starts. It starts out. Yeah, yeah, it starts out like that. It starts out with very few, very few folks around you. And that's all right. Um, if you keep building yourself and your belief, you will be a light for other people and they will come to you. And that's really all that this work is, just being a light for yourself, for someone else. And we have to let go of this idea that the more people who see us, the more right we are. I am so lucky that I have two things. And that's really what you need, two things um, to do impactful work. I've got years and peers, you know, and I have some years behind me, but I have peers who hold me accountable. And that's what you want to build around you. Peers who see you, who value you, who push you. If you do those things, you will be sustained through it and beyond these viral, the viral mania. It was such a pleasure to meet you and talk today. I'm really, really grateful that you took the time. Yes, I'm, I'm really grateful too. And um, it's, you know, these moments, I mean, time is the greatest gift we have to give. And so what a remarkable thing that we can, even in isolation, you know, can be connecting. I hope that we can meet in person one day. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Friend of a Friend. Before you go, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at tiermedia.com. And for more behind the scenes of the show, visit us at friendofafriend.us and follow me at Liv Perez on Instagram. Don't forget the two Vs. See you next week.